there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. Hi everyone, this is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. We're super excited today to have a return guest, someone that I chatted with when his debut came out, and I absolutely loved speaking with him then and uh, fangirled a bit. And we have him back today. So our guest is the author of Star is Bored, held by the New York Times Book Review as wildly funny and irreverent. He's a playwright, screenwriter, Emmy Award-winning journalist and former assistant to the actress Carrie Fisher. He's originally from New Orleans and lives in Palm Springs, California, with his husband, the author Stephen Rowley, and their rescue dogs, Raindrop and Shirley. So it's my pleasure to welcome Byron Lane. Byron, welcome back to the show. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. I'm a little nervous. I'm huge fans of all of you. I think you're changing publishing, for sure changing writing for the better. So this is an exciting, exciting moment for me. Very exciting for us. Carly and Cece, I feel like you both need to get your fangirling out as well so that we can move forward. <laughs> okay, okay, I'm going to go first. Okay, Byron. I mean, you are amazing on social media. If any authors need to check out who's doing great work on social media, follow Byron. He's doing an amazing, amazing job getting the word out there, just being an awesome presence on the internet. So we give you a round of applause oh, as well. Thank you, Carly. Byron, you know who we are. Seriously, if I ever have a bad day, all I need to do is remind myself of that. Byron said he thinks we're awesome. Like, that's all I need in my life. Thank More than you. awesome. You're changing the world. <laughs> yes, of course. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Alrighty, so now we've got the love fest over. We are going to do as we usually do, and we are going to dive straight in. 
So Carly will kick us off with the first query letter. We're going to chat to Byron a bit about his book, which is absolutely amazing. It's called Big Gay Wedding. It is just a warm hug of a book. And we're going to chat to Byron about a whole bunch of elements of craft surrounding that. And then Cece will do her query and we'll come back to Byron so that he can do a query letter as well. Right. So Carly, kick it off for us, please. Dear Carly Waters, I'm seeking representation for Salt and Caramel, my adult BIPOC rom-com completed 80,000 words. This dual POV marriage of convenience story draws inspiration from the bride test and will appeal to fans of the banter and fake dating in a not-so-meet-cute. 22-year-old free-spirited Jawabello has begged two STEM degrees but faces deportation for overstaying her visa. With her best friend, her aunt, and her dream job at Adri, a top game development company, keeping her in the U.S., she resorts to her aunt's matchmaking strategies. When her blind date is CEO of Adri, Damson Adegoke, she's gobsmacked. To ensure her stay in the U.S. and possibly to get hired at Adri, Jawa agrees to an arranged marriage with Damson. She doesn't think she's settling, but besides how attractive Damson is, she's soon introduced to his infuriating arrogance. 27-year-old Damson Adegoke's company made the Fortune 500 list this year. As the CEO of Adri, he gets everything he wants. Money, ladies, and fame. But his brooding doesn't get him Lane, his longtime crush. Damson longs for Lane, but doesn't express himself enough to win her. When Lane announces her engagement and marriage to his rival, she makes things worse by asking him to be her bridesman. To demonstrate his skills as a partner to her, he proposes a marriage agreement to the woman his aunt set him up with, Jawa. As they play house for the next two months, they find themselves drawn together, not only by their scorching sexual needs, but their shared love for K-dramas and Nigerian delicacies. Things fall apart when Lane finally has an epiphany. She likes the side of Damson she sees. Longs for that, not her fiancé. Damson risks losing Jawa, who doesn't believe he can truly get over Lane to make space for her. Would Jawa stay in the U.S. secured? A meeting with Lane puts her on the horns of a dilemma. Stay with Damson and feel like second best to his heart or leave him for Lane. Like my main characters, I am Nigerian, a social science graduate, an ELCA certified screenwriter, and the author of an indie published YA legal thriller. Thank you for your time. May I send you my full manuscript? Sincerely, Kultham Asha. Wonderful, Carly. Okay, what was the word count there on the query and what was your take on that? Okay, this one came in at 377 words. Okay, so just in terms of length, we kind of always start off with that. This is a really great length. I think it was very punchy. This person has screenwriting backgrounds, and I feel like that kind of came through in the kind of cinematic potential here. Just starting off at the top of the query letter. So you have in here my adult BIPOC rom-com, and then in the next line, you say marriage of convenience. So marriage is obviously for adults. So I think we can just cut the word adult and just save yourself a word there. Now, in terms of the overall idea of this book, this is super fun, but I think we have to suspend a lot of disbelief here. So I wonder a little bit about plausibility in terms of why is she out of time for her visa? Why does she want to stay? I don't really quite understand like that, that drive kind of other than the job, but you kind of get a job anywhere. Like I just really wanted to know why she needed to stay. Also a little bit of fuzziness around the ethics, right? Because this is kind of like marrying for a green card, like obviously 
there's, there, you can fall in love in many different ways. And, you know, obviously arranged marriages are also a thing. And so I don't, I just was not clear on the kind of ethical gray water here we were sorting through. So I felt like I had some plausibility concerns that maybe could be addressed in the query letter. I'm not sure. Okay. Now I, I really liked this Damson Adagoke character. I think his plot is almost a little bit more interesting than her plot. So I'm kind of wondering if we should start with his plot paragraph instead of her plot paragraph. I don't know. I'm just kind of playing around with that idea because, yeah, I don't know. He seems he seems very, very interesting and, and mysterious and really has a bit more, I think, grounding in terms of the stakes and the reasonings behind what he's doing and why he's making these decisions. So I think this is very interesting as long as we suspend that disbelief. So I'm just kind of, I'm not sure about if agents will be able to do that, if I can do that. But I'm, I was very curious about the pages and, and where this was all going to go. Thank you, Carly. Yeah, for our listeners, those stakes up front are so incredibly important. Why a character wants to do X instead of Y, because remember, that affects causality. What the character desperately wants, the stakes tied to that, are going to determine how the character behaves. It's going to kick off behavior A, which then has repercussions, which leads to behavior B, which then results in C. So that needs to be very firmly rooted in the reader's mind, especially in a book where plausibility might be an issue. You've really got to get them on board with that so that the rest of the book, they aren't questioning the plausibility. Okay, so Carly, what was in those opening pages? So we open with Jawa, our main character. She is in the vehicle with her aunt. They are on their way to another kind of auntie's house um, who's not directly related, but kind of somebody who they consider an aunt within the family. So they're kind of talking a little bit about the fact of her deportation kind of looming. They're on the way to kind of set up the meet cute, basically, and they are on their way to introduce her to somebody and she doesn't know who. So she gets there. It's a huge mansion of a house. She's kind of like, oh, this is beautiful. Like she knew the auntie, but had never been to her house before. It's just gorgeous. We find out they're in Minnesota is another thing we find out. We find out about some of her interests in terms of wanting to work for this gaming company. And then we get in and the next person that is brought in is our male lead. So right away, these two are kind of thrown in together. And it isn't love at first sight there. She's enamored with him because she knows of him through the gaming company. And he is kind of just like, huh, this isn't who I thought it was going to be. So it's a bit of a grumpy sunshine start here. And yeah, that's where we're at. Okay, so did those opening pages do the heavy lifting that we require of them in terms of getting the reader on board with the characters, getting a sense of what it is they want, and wanting to spend the rest of the book with them? Yeah, those are those are good questions. I mean, I feel I feel like everything kind of for me ended up a little bit too on the nose because we have when the when our main character Jawa is talking with her aunt, she's talking about Damson and she's talking about the job she wants and so to kind of just go so on the nose and so just straightforward into the book without some twists and turns I just as I said it just felt a little one note to me and I would have loved like for example you know as I said a way to kind of twist this would be when she's at the auntie's house what if instead of Damson walking in there's somebody else walks in first right like we just to the fact that you know everything is happening in this sequential order in a way that feels a little bit predictable to the reader I think 
I don't know. It's just a little bit challenging, I think, for the reader to feel surprised when they inevitably know what's happening. Obviously, I kind of know what's happening through the query letter, but jacket copy is going to kind of do the job at the end of the day when we when we think about what, when the book comes out. So I think there's a lot of things we could do, some things like specificity. We don't actually learn that she's in Minnesota for a while. We really don't fully understand, I think, why she wants to stay. This is the other thing where I'm like... I don't know. I, I feel like we could do a bit more there. There is the connection between her and the auntie and the auntie's like, I want you to stay. Like, you know, we spilled all, spent all this time kind of building this relationship while you've been in school. And so I like that. I almost wonder if we can like double down on that auntie connection. I think, I think that could be, that could be a really great way to kind of, maybe the auntie needs her, like really needs her when she feels like pulled in that direction, not just this whole, like, I need an arranged marriage to, to stay in the country. So I, I don't know. I really like the idea of these two characters. I just want to make sure like they go off on some tangents before they officially meet each other and, and kind of maybe do the official meet cute. And, and we only get five pages. So maybe on page six, like things all go awry and, and all of this will be for nothing. But I would like to be a bit more surprised as a reader. The other thing I think we could do is so they... Again, these characters are Nigerian and this was really starting to come through in kind of like the anti-language and, and all of that kind of connection between these characters and the way that they talk and communicate with each other. And so at one point it says, my friend, won't you let us in before you suffocate her? Aunt TD asks her in Yoruba, like their language. And I wish that maybe we could throw in some some words in, in, in that language as well so we can really... I don't know, just just feel like the the setting, the characterization is really kind of sweeping over us. And, and I think I, I would have liked that as well. Yeah, so for the, this author, listen to the episode that we did with M. Evelina Galang, in which we spoke about her use of Filipino words throughout the novel, and also read an amazing book called uh, Someday Maybe, in which language use was used throughout as well to really elevate the work in terms of the culture. So something to look at. All right, Carly, thank you so much for that. Right, we're coming back to Byron Lane, author of Big Gay Wedding, who we're going to be chatting with about his book before he critiques one of the submissions that have been sent in. And I love what Carly said about surprise in terms of the last query letter, because this is something I was surprised straight out the gate when I opened Big Gay Wedding. So for me, when I start reading a book, I like to come into it cold. I've had way too many jacket copies ruin the story for me. I understand that marketing people need to do something to get you interested, etc. But there's been way too much information revealed on jacket copies. So I went straight into this. And the book is called Big Gay Wedding. Now, I am going to read you the jacket copy so you know what it's about. The jacket copy that I didn't read. Two grooms, one mother of a problem. Barnett Durang has a secret. No, not that secret. His widowed mother has long known he's gay. The secret is Barnett is getting married at his mother's farm in this small Louisiana town. She just doesn't know it yet. It'll be an intimate affair. Just 200 or so of the most fabulous folks Barnett is shipping in from the heathen coasts, as mom likes to call them, turning her quiet rescue farm for misfit animals into a most unlikely wedding venue. But there are forces, both within this modern new family and in the town itself, that really don't want to see this handsome couple march down the aisle. It'll be the biggest, gayest event in the town's history if they can pull it off. And after a whirlwind, glitter-filled week, nothing will ever be the same. Big Gay Wedding is an uplifting book about the power of family and the unconditional love of a mother 
for her son. So without reading that jacket copy, I went in and I was fully expecting to begin with the son. I was fully expecting to begin with either the proposal or something that would lead us up to that in terms of Barnett. But what Byron chose to do is he starts on kind of like a usual day in the life of the mother of Barnett. So her name is Chrissy Durang. She is on her farm. I love the countdowns, by the way. So we get chapter one, countdown to damnation. 13 days, 11 hours, 10 minutes. So Chrissy doesn't even know yet that there's a countdown to damnation and the clock is already ticking there. Byron, I loved that this was your entry point into it. I was surprised by it, but I absolutely loved it. Now, I say on the podcast all the time that you need to circle your way around the building of a manuscript to figure your way in. Are you coming in through the front door, the fire escape, coming down the chimney, coming through a window? Was this always in your mind as the perfect place to start? Was it something that evolved? And what was your very intentional thinking about beginning with this particular scene? Thank you so much for that. So I... First of all, sometimes it's not until after the book is actually published that you really have your talking point of what this book is about. And so it really wasn't until this book was published and I started talking to people and getting feedback that I realized this is really a coming out story for a mother, a mother coming out as loving her gay son. And when I went into it, I knew that it would be a story about a mother and son. I had had a little gay wedding. My partner, Stephen Rowley, author of The Celebrants and Lily and the Octopus and The Gunkle, he and I had a small gay wedding because COVID was happening and I had just gone through chemotherapy for testicular cancer and I'm fine now. And I was talking to my editor about what my next book would be after A Star is Bored and he said, well, you know, you just had this gay wedding. What about another gay wedding? And uh, what about a gay wedding book? And I was really kind of hesitant about it because I thought, oh God, you know, what I thought of all the cliches of a gay wedding. And for me, that meant like some Manhattan couple and they got all this money and they're throwing this wild party in the big city and blah, blah. And it just, I just couldn't relate to that. And I'm from Louisiana. I'm from a small town. I'm from a town where I didn't grow up knowing any gay people. It wasn't until I left And I thought, well, what if this town had a big gay wedding? And I thought about members of my own family who are older and are struggling with a little bit of loneliness and that kind of thing. And so that's how that's how the mother became this sort of entry point is I knew that it would be her journey. And so we kick it off with her. And I also like to kick off. I like books that are that are a little bit propulsive. So I like books that start with action, start with something happening, get us into the world right away start busting out the rules and the devices that that are going to be used. I like to get all that at the beginning and it just gets me excited. It gets me excited about the author, it gets me excited about the plot and and sometimes some of those devices and things can be can keep me going even if the plot isn't isn't as great. I just try to bring that stuff in and as I'm talking to you, I'm I'm conscious of the fact that we're trying to help writers be more competitive and elevate their material and I know that sometimes I look back at my own stuff and I think, oh, I can see how that could have been elevated. And we're all better writers at the end of a book than we were at the beginning. And so I just couch all of this with thank you so much for the compliment. But the, And those were my goals. 
we just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of one-hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre or time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up for this 3,000-word evaluation. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 2nd of June, with the matchup emails going out on the 3rd of June. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup page, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. And I love what you said about how finding out that this was not about a son coming out, which is what we expect sort of from this trope. You took the trope and you turned it on its head and it was a mother coming out as loving her son. So of course we had to start with Chrissy. And it was just, it was just incredible because you set her up so perfectly in that opening chapter that we start to understand that by the time we see Bonnet, 
the kind of obstacles he's going to have to overcome in terms of his mother's thinking, because we already know who she is. And besides surprising us with how you started the opening chapter, there's things here that I want to read as well that sets up what the characters are expecting compared to what is actually going on. And it says here, so there's a thing with Chrissy. Chrissy looks at her watch again. Barnett will get a ride to the farm, even though the drive from Polite Society Ranch to the airport is a whole tank of gas away. She would have gone to pick him up. She always offers. She's always relieved, not that he declines, but by how he declines. I can't possibly take you away from the ranch. Those little animals need you more than I do. I'll get an Uber, Barnett said. And then I don't have a return flight yet. I'm hoping we can find time to talk. Find time to talk. Those were his exact words, Chrissy recalls. Chrissy almost laughed as he said it. Oh, Barnett, she knows what he wants to talk about. She's been planning it for years and accepting it of late. Her retirement, her passing the farm to its heir, her son. Barnett, her farmer son, just like it says on the brand new leather belt in the neatly wrapped small white box with a sturdy red velvet ribbon tied in a big blossoming bow in the office. No wonder he doesn't have a return flight. He's moving home. And so we know straight out the gate that she has completely misunderstood what is happening here, why Barnett is coming home. And then in chapter two, we have Barnett arriving. Again, I love it. Countdown to damnation. 13 days, 10 hours, five minutes. It goes, Barnett Durang lays eyes on his childhood home and begins picking at a hangnail on his thumb. Where the protruding dead skin meets the living, it's bright pink, almost bloody. Almost time to see his mother, almost time for the talk. This is your destination, man, the Uber driver asks. My destination, Barnett considers. My fate, my end, his stomach contracts. So we know straight out the gate, he is here to do something completely different. And this is probably going to break his mother's heart. And we've got these surprises. We, we know straight out the, out the gate what each character wants. And this creates tension in the reader because the reader in each instance, knows more than what the other character knows. And so we're biting our nails for them, going, oh my goodness, this is going to come to an head, and this is going to be super interesting. I also want to comment on Byron's use of humor in the story, which is absolutely amazing. And it's these tiny little bits when you're adding humor. So I'm just going to read two little bits. Chrissy stares back, looks at her watch, then smiles. Look, I won't treat you like babies if you don't treat me like an enemy. And she's saying this to a group of school kids who've come to visit the farm. I'll walk you around and you can listen or not listen as long as you pretend to be learning incredible things whenever Miss Iva looks over here. Deal? The kids start to show their devious grins and unmaintained teeth. Cool, the freckled spitter says. And the other kids nod their approval. And if you see an animal going to the bathroom, you turn your back. This is a place of dignity. Understood? Absolutely had a giggle at. And then a bit later in the scene, they pass a white picket fence and enter a secluded area with colorful wildflowers offering company to a smattering of graves. The tombstones are simple, made by a guy in New Orleans. Each is a piece of slate engraved with a name. Here lies Jerry Seinfeld. Here lies Cosmo Kramer. Here lies George Constanza. The animals were all named after characters from John's favorite television shows. Good morning, Frasier, Farmer Mom says to the tombstone. Good morning, Newhart. Good morning, Blossom. 
Bonnet was allowed to name that one. And it just tells you so much about this character, about this family, and it makes you giggle at the same time. So can we talk a bit about your use of humor in this interwoven through the sucker punch moments? Because there were moments that I was giggling and then there were moments that I was weeping. And it is so difficult for an author to to just maintain that balance. It's tricky to to weave the humor in there. I feel really lucky because of all the of all the things it takes, all the ingredients for a great manuscript. I find myself always working on plot, always working on sentence structure, always learning new things. Like the moment that you talked about, he's a whole tank of gas away from the farm. I learned that from Chuck Palahniuk's book, Consider This, where he talks about instead of saying 110 miles use language that your characters would use. So I'm always learning new things, but humor does, I feel like I can do a little humor. And and really, it's not that I'm making myself laugh or something. I'm just, I'm trying to keep it as uh, real as possible for, for these people. So when Chrissy says to the kids, like, if you see an animal going to the bathroom, turn your backs. That's funny to us. But for Chrissy, that's very serious. She's not kidding around. And it's the same with some of the other other moments of, of levity in there. I just try to really be character-based, um, and I think that's where a lot of humor can come from, is from honesty. But besides each of these moments being moments of humor, what I love is that they reveal something about Chrissy. So I feel as writers, we go, oh, I'm going to write the scene, it's really funny, and we've got backwards and forwards. But at the end of it, you don't learn much more beyond the character, except that they might be witty. Whereas in this instance, we learn about, you know, her husband who died, what his preferences were. We learn about a certain eccentricity there. We learn about her respect for these animals. And she puts these kids in their place and she's not going to have them all giggling and being like, oh, gross, the animal's pooping or whatever, because she gives these animals their dignity. So even in these moments of human levity, you are tying it constantly to characterization, revealing more about these characters than just having a moment of levity. And I think that's where it really shines. So for writers who are going for humor, don't just have humor for the sake of humor. One throwaway line on the page to make the reader laugh, really have it linked to something revealing about the character. Now, there's a lot more that I want to chat with Byron about, especially this really interesting use that he has of going with third person POV, but combining it with an omniscient POV. He has animals be POV characters and we get their thoughts and feelings as well. So these are things that I want to discuss as well. And he uses quotations from a book on etiquette throughout the novel as well for structure. And I want to come back to that as well. For now, what we're going to do, Cece, will you read us your query letter? Let's do this. Dear Cecilia Vera. I hope my debut novel, The Invulnerable Midwife, will speak to your interest in woman-centered, eclectic storytelling. It is a 70,000-word, post-apocalyptic, adult fiction novel, which features a strong female lead, like in The Book of the Untamed Midwife by Meg Ellison, Community Survival Challenges, as in Moon of the Crusted Snow, by Wabke Shig Rice, as well as high-stakes adventures, like in the TV show The Last of Us. It is narrated by Maggie, a 35-year-old midwife whose rare AB blood type means she is an invulnerable, immune to the deadly virus that ended the modern world. 
Two years after the outbreak, different blood groups remain lethally contagious to one another, and survivors live in three distinct regions based on which type they have, A, B, or O. Maggie can live anywhere, but she has chosen to live a quiet life with her sister in Ozone. However, when a friend asks Maggie to travel to District A to care for a pregnant woman named Beth, she begrudgingly agrees. Through Beth, Maggie becomes a midwife mentor to a few women in the district, reviving passions she feared were lost in the pandemic's wake. She even surprises herself with a romantic connection to a charming courier. Just as Maggie is finding her stride in this role, her sister gets pregnant and develops life-threatening hypertension. Maggie knows that to save her sister, she must somehow find medication to stabilize her blood pressure until delivery. Medication that is non-existent in ozone or District A. Motivated by rumors that the third region has been hoarding resources, but daunted by the accounts of imprisonment and experimental abuse of invulnerables, Maggie decides to risk it all to protect her sister. Soon, it is not only her sister's life that's at stake, but her own. When she comes face to face with the man who is determined to do whatever it takes to find a cure for the virus. I am a registered midwife in the Niagara region of Ontario and a mother of a spunky three-year-old girl and a sleepy old dog. I love to write about birth and motherhood and my personal birth story will be published in an anthology of Canadian birth stories set to come out this year. My dream life consists of catching babies and sharing stories with the world. May I send you my full manuscript? Respectfully, Brittany Oliver. P.S. I don't mind that my senior dog walks so slowly now because I am so blissfully distracted by your podcast while we are out roaming the neighborhood. Thank you for dedicating so much time to help aspiring authors like me. Also, I think I need your help with my darling prologue. Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. Okay, what was our word count there and what was your take on that? So the word count here we know because the author told us it's at 398 words and it doesn't include the PS, which is fair. That's a note for us. Totally get it. Notes. So the title is quite similar to one of your comps and I'm wondering whether that's intentional. I don't think it's a big issue at this point because titles change so often anyway, but I don't know, something to, something to think about. I have to watch The Last of Us. Everyone keeps saying it's amazing, but I tried and the mushrooms on the screen freaked me out like I mentioned before. So I want to say that the premise is really interesting. You have me hooked based on the premise alone. There's so many dystopian novels out there, so many post-apocalyptic novels. And this one, the separation between the blood types, the fact that people become contagious and lethal to each other because of their blood type, it's, it's really interesting. So I'm definitely hooked by the premise. I also want to say that I really like the plot paragraph a lot. I'm wondering, though, if there's an opportunity to explain why midwifery is an important role in this world. Maybe it's just me, but I keep thinking about the fact that like, I am trying to remember my biology classes, which I did not pay much attention to. But two A-type people can give birth to a O-type person, right? Same with two B-type people. So I, what happens if the baby is not that doesn't have the same blood type? Is that why midwifery is, is a profession that's so important to this book? Like, is it something that's regulated in this world in a different way? 
do the midwives have any any say in terms of like like do they figure out what the baby's blood type is? I'm just I'm so curious about the world building. And like are people separated from their babies? Does positive and negative matter at all? Is that why midwives have to be A B? Because they don't get sick if they come in touch with a baby that's a different blood type from their own? I, I just had so many questions. So if anybody is like me and starting to have their ears glaze over as CC tries to teach us a biology lesson, I'm wondering if I need to run upstairs and grab my husband because he has a master's degree in genetics. And so maybe he can solve this one for us. I'm feeling like, yeah, I'm feeling like we need him. Carry on, CC. It's interesting though, right? Because the author did a really good job here because we're, we're, we're all talking about this. So this is exactly what you want. Yeah, I, I, you know, overall, like, excellent job. I know exactly what to expect from the story. I know what the stakes are. You know, first it's her sister's life, then it's her own. I am wondering, though, if I were to be super, super, super picky, which let's face it, I usually am, the romantic relationship. How does that relationship tie into the world? I think it's awesome that you mentioned she surprises herself with a romantic relationship. But how does it come into the world? Does it lead to a betrayal? Either her of his or his of hers. I don't know. I'm assuming it's a him. Maybe it's not a him. I don't know, right? Like, and I, it's important to show worlds colliding when it comes to relationships. So, if you want to include that, great. If not, honestly, I would, I would a thousand percent just scroll down and keep reading this with so much enthusiasm if it had arrived in my query letter. And I also have to say it, baby, baby, baby for the dog. I have to say it. Thanks, Cece. Okay, what was in those opening pages? Okay, so we have, as promised, a prologue. First person, stream of consciousness, our protagonist is sharing how she will always be a midwife, even at the end of the world. And she shares how she's always been drawn to birth, to how we come into the world ever since she was a little girl. We learned that her mom, who struggled with infertility and trying to get pregnant, finally did get pregnant with the protagonist's sister when she was nine. And when it was time for her mom to, to give birth, she knew about her daughter's, the protagonist's interest in midwifery. So she invited the protagonist to be a part of the experience. And the protagonist was, you know, in awe of the midwife who was a calming presence in the room. And when the sister is finally born, because everything works out great, the mom says, you know, I know you will always protect your sister. And that's how the prologue ends. Okay, so how do we feel about the prologue? Because we're always talking about prologues on the show and, and the pages in general. What do we do with our darlings in publishing? What do we do? We kill them with all the love in the actual universe. Literally all the love in the universe right now. This prologue has got to go. Like it's, you're starting for so many reasons. Okay, reason number one. You're starting with her origin story about her larger role and love and passion and you know her vocation for midwifery. Why are we starting with this? Like, we know she loves midwifery. Let's start in the story, you know? Like, let's have a scene where something's interesting is happening and through carefully placed lines, we'll know about her passion for this, this job. But if you wanted to start with an origin story, because sometimes that's the author's vision, the origin story can't be neat and tidy. It starts with her saying she's always loved the idea of finding out how people come into the world. Her mom was super supportive. When her mom got pregnant, she got to help out. Midwife was great. Everything is great. There was no tension. There was no surprise. And it's just like, for example, I kept picturing if this is your vision, which I don't think it should be. I think you should start in scene. Then her origin story needs to be messy. She needs to not be drawn to birth at all and surprise herself when she has to, because a complication occurs, help out the midwife. And that situation gives her power and purpose. And again, she falls in love with midwifery. That would be much more compelling because there would be the surprise element to the character. 
and of course to the reader as well. So I don't think you're starting in the right place. I, I, I think that there's there's room to to change this. I want to say that the use of the third person might be better here. You're doing this in first person. And I don't know, it just it's didn't seem supernatural for a world building book. I remember Bianca in one of her first books with Hooks mentioning how for world building, third person's much easier because you don't need to have the protagonist think about her own world in first, which doesn't necessarily sound organic. And so it's something that I would play around with if you're if you're open to it. The tone was very light. Like it was almost sweet. Which, come on, this is a post-apocalyptic novel. It doesn't match the tone, right? Like, there's no way. This is a world in which people are divided by their blood types and her sister's going to be in danger. So I, I wanted a different tone, which is why I think we need to start with a different moment. And keep this origin story for yourself because it's going to inform how her relationship with abstract elements occur on the page, her relationship with death, her relationship with life. So it's still important that you did this work, but I think you need to start with, with chapter one, whatever that looks like, because I haven't read it. And I want to say also about the good things. There's excellent interiority here, like excellent interiority. Whenever the protagonist was noticing something, she turned it back to herself. She revealed something about herself. This was really good, excellent details. There was also a really interesting line. So we know her mom struggles with infertility, right? And there's a line that says, my mom was buying pregnancy tests in bulk at this point, which was either an act of ardent optimism or skepticism, depending on how you look at it. And I thought that was a really intelligent way for us to see how the protagonist relates to the world. So I really, really enjoy that too. So I would have so much fun brainstorming a new beginning with you because this story seems excellent. And I would love to read it when it's ready because I love the premise of the story. I just don't think you're starting in the right place. Thank you, Cece. The premise that you set up in terms of surprise made me have to tell you a quick story from my own life, which was very surprising, is that I was asked by an ex-boyfriend, who's now a friend, I'm friends with all my ex-boyfriends, to please come and take photographs of the birth of his first child, and it was going to be cesarean section. Now, I fainted the sight of blood, and I really did not want to do this. And I said, if the gynecologist and if the anesthetist says it's fine, I will come, fully expecting them to say no. They said yes. So there I found myself at four o'clock in the morning, standing above his wife's head with the anesthetist telling me where to point the camera for as the baby springs out of its mother's belly. And the father is sitting just behind me and I'm still a bit squeamish. And he says to me, if you're going to faint, let me know because I will grab your camera. I know it's really expensive. And I'm like, I really appreciate that. And as they start cutting and I see the blood trickling, I'm focusing through my camera and I'm keeping it together. And as the baby's pulled out, it looks like it's parachuting and I get the most amazing picture and the father faints behind me. And I actually had to step over his face so that I could get a picture of his daughter coming out of the womb. So these are the kinds of unexpected things we're not expecting in birthing rooms. Right. Okay. We will segue from that to Byron's book. Right. So Byron, something that I wanted to chat about is how you move so seamlessly between third person, close, and omniscient, right? Because I generally say to writers, pick one, pick the other. So I just, I'm going to read just a, a small part here. So the next burst of wailing, even louder now, like metal grinding on metal, causes the ground to vibrate and the macaws in the barn to chant their panic, sounding alarm with the only words they know. 
Good morning, they shout frantically. You're so pretty, they shout in blood-curdling bursts. If only the birds had a wider vocabulary. If only they knew how to say warning or it's getting closer. It's here the macaws would warn, if only they could. And this is all in Chrissy's POV. So let's talk about experimenting with POV because this is what you did here and it made the piece come alive in ways that it never would have if you had just stuck to close third person. Thanks. I always look for ways to blow things up, open things up. And so if I have a macaw that talks, great. This is great news. So I try not to think of that scene as um, Chrissy's point of view. I try to think of it as taking so many steps back and really zooming out, I'm telling a story. Byron is just telling this story. And in this story that I'm telling around the campfire, I'm talking about these macaws. And so we're spending a few minutes on the macaws and, and soon we're going to go back to Chrissy and we're going to talk about her belt and what she's nervous about with her son and, and all that stuff. So I try to keep it moving. I try to keep it interesting. And I love a device. So if I have the chance to have an animal that talks and macaws talk, so I'm not getting too crazy or wild there, then I try to lean into it a little bit. And also, again, it adds to the characterization because once again, you are showing us what an integral part of this world Chrissy is. She's on this farm. She's surrounded by all of these animals who are an extension of her. It's not just her and the animals. And then later on, Oh my God, there is a scene with a sheep called Elaine and Byron actually, instead of writing that scene from Chrissy's perspective, he writes the whole scene from Elaine, the sheep's perspective. And I was sobbing. Like my husband walked in and he was like, are you okay? And I was like, I am not okay. And just by changing that one particular POV, because For our listeners, it's so important when you are writing multiple POVs, always choose the POV for that particular scene that's going to have the biggest sucker punch for the person who has the highest stakes in that scene. And I don't want to give too much away, but in the scene, the highest stakes are Elaine the Sheeps. And is, is that why you chose specifically to write that chapter from her perspective instead of Chrissy's? Yes. Elaine is, well, first her name, Elaine, is a reference to the Seinfeld character she was named after. So again, we're seeing something that I try to do and try to do effectively. I don't think I always succeed, but, and that is there's nothing wasted or unsaid. I wanted a name that was memorable. There's a family bit where they love watching television together. They're watching Seinfeld. So then that extended to we're naming the characters that the animals after television programs Everything is sort of, I try to keep everything connected and nothing is, is wasted. So I knew that Elaine's suffering would be, in that moment, she's, she's experiencing something. And because she's an animal, I can write her a little bit childlike. And I can write her a little bit ignorant of the realities of the world. So readers know what she's going through, but she doesn't know what she's going through. And I read somewhere, maybe it was Stephen King's book on writing, or uh, or maybe it was in Chuck Palahniuk's book, which I, again, it's called Consider This, and I can't recommend it enough, but it's surprising, but also making your readers feel smart, and like they they have a sense of, of what's happening before Elaine does, and so it just adds to the emotion. So I did think that this was Elaine's moment. Yeah, it, it was her moment to shine, boy, and did she? I think it's like, 
There's tons of books. We've seen remarkably bright creatures and other books come out where we get animals, POVs. But I swear to God, this is my favorite chapter in that whole sort of subgenre. It was just amazing for our listeners. I read it and then I dare you to come back to me and tell me you weren't sobbing as well. That's all I'm saying, right? Um, and that tension is created again once the reader knows something that a particular character doesn't know. And Byron plays with this throughout. We know what his mother thinks is going to happen when Bonnet comes home. That's not what's going to happen. We know what Bonnet is thinking. We know Chrissy's going to be hugely surprised and disappointed when this comes across. So each time we have access to their emotionality and their interiority, especially when they're wrong. We sit there wincing and biting our nails because we're like, oh man, this is not going to work out the way you think. But but that Elaine chapter was just glorious. One last question before we go into your critique um, of your submission, Byron. I love how the different parts were split up with these announcements from something called Mrs. Jeannie Lafitte's Undisputed Guide to Respectable Southern Nuptials, Volume 3, page 22, copyright 1912 by Miss Jeannie Lafitte. This is about announcements. Sweetheart, announce an engagement with soft tongue, for what is a marriage if not also a funeral? Consider mamas who weep as their virgin sons and daughters perish into adulthood. To calm their hysteria, simply serve chilled pineapple slices or affix leeches to the discontented abdomen. Right, then we've got something here about cold feet. Sweetheart, the condition of cold feet doesn't only affect boys of war. If it seems daunting that a marriage is forever, that you only get one shot to make the perfect choice, that you will be bound and judged and waited throughout all eternity or damnation to another human, I recommend simply not thinking too much about it. So um, is this a real book, Byron, or did you make this up? Um, so when I sent this draft to my editor, he texted me, oh my God, this uh, wedding guide. And I didn't know whether he was saying, oh my God, this is terrible or, oh my God, where did you find this? Or, but he did ask like, did you, you know, where is this a real book? And it's not a real book. It really is. Again, it was just um, a device to frame what's about to happen. So cold feet is about to happen, that kind of thing. Anxiety about the wedding is happening. And I also wanted to contrast how marriage has changed so much some of that stuff I had to Google, like uh, old articles, advice for wedding gifts, things like that. And they would be the most absurd things. And there's a book about a gay wedding. It's not the kind of a traditional marriage. And I just wanted to kind of highlight, like, you know what? Traditions have been a little bit flexible and some traditions are ridiculous. And I tried to use those things to accomplish those marks. Yeah, you did. You did them perfectly. They had me giggling and it did. And it also made you realize that there's a lot of people in this town who haven't evolved all that much past this advice that they were given in the 1912s. There's some people who have advanced hugely, but there's some people who really want to be living um, back in those days, which also underpins the kind of struggles that they are having in this town as well. Right. Okay. Byron, can you read us your query letter, please? Hi, Cece. I'm seeking representation for my debut upmarket contemporary fiction novel, All the King's Horses, complete at 90,000 words. 
It appeals to readers who enjoy the realness of the characters in Sally Rooney's Normal People and the dysfunction of Taffy Brodesser Ackner's Fleischman is in Trouble. Considering your interest in stories about relationships, especially dysfunctional ones, and stories with unhappy, not necessarily likable characters, I am hoping you will find this worth a look. Your podcast has been my go-to running playlist for quite some time, and I love your, Carly's, and Bianca's candid commentary and thoughts on publishing. Content warnings, suicide, alcoholism. Henry Day is an emotionally stifled, mid-30s urbanite with a drinking problem and a desperate desire for something different. He needs a break from his job, from his wife, from his past, from himself. His only remaining motivation is his love for his two young daughters, and even that is waning in its ability to keep him going. When Henry receives an unexpected email from a stranger claiming to have an urgent message from his long-dead father, he has, for the first time in a long time, an urge to push through his pain and find out more. Having never overcome the suicide of his father when he was young, he sees in this message an opportunity to heal his wounds or escape them altogether. And with his marriage on the verge of collapse and his best friend on his deathbed, he's running out of things to lose. Out of desperation, Henry agrees to meet the stranger and learn what he has to say, and along the way must figure out how to navigate life so that the pain of his past and his habits of his present don't ruin his chance at a fulfilling future or any future at all. All the King's Horses is the story of a man attempting to push past deep trauma and come to terms with a lifetime of self-destructive habits, habits that have led him to an existence of which he feels ashamed and about which he can find no sense of purpose or control. It is the story of the unbearable weight of shame and guilt of a man's fight against the consequences of having succumbed to their oppressive gnawing and gnashing against his conscience. I am based in Cleveland, Ohio, along with my wife, Margaret, and I wrote this book while on paternity leave with our now two-year-old twins, Hank and Cecilia. I am a former teacher and athletics coach who taught myself how to code, pivoted careers, and now work in the tech industry. Thank you for your consideration. Tim Freeman. Wonderful, Byron. Thank you. Okay, Cece, since it was addressed to you, will you give us your take on that first? Yeah, absolutely. So I noticed that the comps are two books I adore. And immediately when that happens, I'm already like, oh my gosh, yes, I want to read this query letter. I love, love, love both normal people and Fleischman is in trouble. When it comes to the plot paragraph, this is when, as per usual, I feel like a big jerk. But here we go. We have Henry Day who's not doing okay, right? He's going through all these very real, very understandable struggles. And he gets an email from someone saying that he has a message from his father who we know died by suicide. And he agrees to meet the stranger to find out what he has to say. What's jolting Henry right now is an email. What is meeting with this stranger going to cost him? It seems like not a lot beyond his own energy and motivation, which is internal. And so I'm not sure this is a compelling enough setup. I would advise every writer out there to ask yourself, what is jolting your main character into action, right? And if you're writing upmarket fiction, which this writer is, then I think it needs to be something that's just more compelling. With Fleischman is in trouble, for example, you have the fact that the wife disappears. Like Toby's wife is gone. He has no idea where she is, no idea where Rachel is. And that is obviously compelling in terms of external plot points, right? not just his interiority. Storytellers, story anyone, storytellers, story sellers, story buyers, story people, we're not in the business of healthy. 
because it's healthy to consider your interiority. It's healthy to find out who you are and what happened to your father and navigate the world. But we're not in the business of healthy. We're in the business of interesting. And so to make this interesting, I think we need more external plot. And maybe the plot is there in the story, in which case you have to add it to the query letter. And if it's not, then maybe you have to actually add it to the story. But I just think you need more external things happening here. I thought it was really well written and I really like the themes that you're exploring. These are things that I am personally like interested in as a reader. And yeah, that's what I thought. Carly, did you have anything you wanted to add to that? I want to add two things. First of all, I wanted on the record that Byron read that query letter and didn't make a single error. And both Cece and I made so many mistakes today that had to be edited. So Byron gets to be invited back on again for, for a repeat appearance. And Cece, that was an incredible analysis. I feel like what you just heard Cece say is like a summary of everything we've been doing on this podcast for years, like really trying to figure out the why Cece is so kind of empathetic and always so understanding and always like feels the characters in her bones. And and I think that was an incredible analysis. So I actually don't have anything to contribute today. Thank you, Carly. All right. So Byron, will you give us an indication in terms of an overview of what was in those opening pages so our listeners understand before you let us know what you thought of them? Sure. So our opening pages start with Henry Day and a day in Henry Day's life. So he's just getting things started. He's at work. He's got a bottle of alcohol at his desk. Boss comes by. He, he leaves work and he starts heading home. Okay, so when we generally give advice to our listeners, we say, try not to have a character who's by themselves too long. Try and have them conversing with somebody else, because otherwise we just have a lot of interiority. Try and have conflict in opening scenes and make it clear to us, to the reader, what it is that the character wants and if there are stakes tied to that. So just in terms of those, how many of those boxes do you think were ticked? What did you like? What did you think could be elevated? So we definitely get a sense that this is a man struggling who wishes uh, things were different. So I definitely felt that. And when I hear that, that a story is involving suicide or alcoholism, I'm in. Like Those are things that I'm fascinated by. When I hear that his love for his two young daughters is waning, I'm, I'm also, I'm like, I'm in, I'm in. And then the email from the long dead father that was mentioned in the letter, I'm in. But I didn't, I didn't feel all of that in these pages, but I did feel like there was potential. So I'm the kind of, I mean, I'm not a critic or an agent, so I don't have those kind of backgrounds, but I can tell you as a writer and a consumer, things that I kind of look for and, and cushion around. Art sort of never finished. So even my books that are in bookstores right now, there are chapters I wish I could go rework, word choices I wish I could change. And I just read this news article about chemical imaging they're doing in Egypt in the pyramids and seeing how they changed art even back then. So like, you know, like it just is an ancient thing. But I thought maybe my, my thoughts on these pages, I would give the goal here of just being, how do you make this more competitive? Because in this, in this writing publishing world, that's really what we're, we're talking about. Like things need to be uh, competitive. So my, my bullet points here for a story that is solid, these pages are solid. There are a couple typos and a couple spots where commas I think were, were misused. And those are things that I bumped on, but these pages are solid, but we want them to be competitive, right? So if, for those things, I would say a more dynamic entrance. So instead of just uh, sitting at his at his desk, 
staring at the bottle of booze and considering whether to have a drink. Maybe he's trying to avoid his boss and the boss is coming. I don't know. Do you see how that immediately creates tension, action, someone's chasing, someone's trying to avoid, that kind of thing. The other thing I would invite is to make choices that are specific to the piece. So for example, there's a part where he talks about navigating the incessant crashing waves of life. And when I saw incessant crashing waves, I was like, all right, well, I've heard the wave thing before. Is there, is there something specific to this story? And so I think that this uh, Henry Day works in economics, but I thought to myself, well, what if, I don't know what that might serve. And maybe in later pages, we find out what that is. But what if he worked in marketing? And if he worked in marketing, instead of saying that his life is navigating the incessant crashing waves of boredom or whatever, he could say something like, the copy for, I'm looking at myself in the mirror and the copy for my ad would be, he's drowning. The copy for this ad would use words like seasick. So like you could say anyone is navigating the incessant crashing waves, but this guy who works in, uh, if you choose marketing or if you choose economics, this guy works in the Dow is plummeting as I sit here, my, you know, like the, that kind of, those were, would be my sort of my big notes to be specific to the piece, try to make the scene uh, dynamic. Here comes the boss or whatever. And maybe to try to avoid some familiar phrases like at one point, like the lid on the thing was tight. And then the writer wrote, of course, it's tight. Like if you're writing, of course, we're probably thinking, of course. I also look for words like well, comma, this. Or there's another spot where the, the phrase at least. So they never spoke, at least he never spoke to them. And so at least, of course, well, those are all uh, words that I try to use really sparingly because anyone can use them. And this work, I think to elevate work to being competitive, we want to make it as much us as possible, as much the character as possible, and to flush out all that stuff. Can I ask a question? So when his boss does come in and find him, is there an interaction between them, especially considering there's the alcohol on the desk? Yes. So that's another spot that I kind of made some notes about. The boss comes in and the boss says, looking real busy there, Hank. And again, that was another moment where I thought, oh, there's opportunity there for the boss to say something like anyone uh, could say, looking real busy there, Bianca, Byron, Cece, anyone. Could it be more specific to that world? For some reason, I, I was thinking about marketing instead of economics. But if this was a marketing world, instead of coming in and saying, looking real busy there, Hank, a bad example would be if the VP came in and said, oh. It looks like I should have given you that Prozac account after all. You're perfect for it. Do you see how it kind of, you're saying something and it's really specific to the world? Yeah. And also, I, it feels like that's a moment of missed, a missed opportunity in terms of conflict and tension. Because I feel like most bosses, when they walk in and see alcohol on, the, on someone's desk, there's going to be some kind of discussion about it, whether it's passive aggressive, whether it's whatever, but that discussion should tell us more about both of the characters, about their dynamic. Has Hank got zero fucks left to give? And he's like, behold my field of fucks, it is barren. Like I really feel like any opportunity we have in opening pages, and even if what he's saying to the boss is one thing, to placate the boss, but he's thinking something else, like you're an asshole or whatever the case may be, is we get that push and pull between what is being said, what is being thought. Yeah, and I think there's just more opportunity yet to just heighten all the conflict. 
Yes. And he does, this writer does give us some of that, how our main character feigns enthusiasm. The main character calls the boss a dick to himself and those kind of things. Uh, Again, I would just say that there's opportunity to make, this is all solid. It's just, there's opportunity to make it more competitive and to make it more competitive Anyone and maybe everyone at some point has called their boss a dick. So what else is there about about this guy? Or like the way the boss ties the necktie, this writer has a bit about how maybe it's because he has a, a a small small genitals. Well, we've heard that too. But is there is there another way to say that that captures who the boss is and who your your main character is? So I'm just looking when I read things and look at I'm just. Those are things to consider if you want to make this more competitive. Amazing, Byron. Thank you so, so much. We're almost out of time for our interview. What I just wanted to uh, slip in one more question. In terms of Big Gay Wedding being your sophomore novel, and I'm assuming you were on, were you on a deadline to write this? Was it a two book deal or you were not on a deadline to write this? I was on a money deadline, Bianca. I needed a paycheck. So it was a two book deal. But during COVID, I had written a whole nother book that wasn't a right match for the time and the publisher and all that. So that's just on a shelf. And so so the, the only real time crunch here was just they were excited to have it and I was excited to deliver it. I love the money deadline because that is it for all writers. The hustle is real, man. I'll be trying to get something done and Cece will go, well, just take a bit more time. You're not on a deadline. It's like the paycheck needs to come, Cece. But in terms of this book compared to your first, was there anything that this book taught you that your first book didn't teach you? Were there things that you came up against that you were like, oh, I was expecting this to be so much easier than the first book? Or was it perhaps so much easier than the first book? Well, the first book, A Star is Bored, was inspired by my time working for Carrie Fisher as her assistant and trying to kind of wrangle her life into something manageable. And so I did have a, a sort of path for the, the first book. This book was really mostly fiction. I mean, I did draw from family down south and my experiences as a gay person coming out and navigating family. So that was a challenge. Another kind of unexpected challenge was that I'm writing a book about a big gay wedding, and the actual big gay wedding was not the most interesting thing to me. I was most interested in these characters and this family and this town and the resolution. Um, So that surprised me. Another just little element is that calling a book Big Gay Wedding, you're already sort of, it's sort of like if you've titled a book, The Hero Dies in the End, you're already sort of setting something up. And so you almost have to make it about something else, or it has to be sort of surprising. And those were all, those were all interesting. I'll tell you the biggest surprises come though, for me always, once it's out in the world, I buy the ebook sometimes and I look and see what passages people are highlighting. And then people sort of tell me afterwards that their spouse kicked them out of the room because they were laughing or crying too much. And those are the parts that truly special to me. But gosh, every book, every book I'm learning more. And that's why I mentioned the thing about is art really ever finished or do we just turn it in? I don't know. But I had a great time writing. Yeah. And you know what? And and I love what you said that after your first book, there was another book and that is now sitting in the drawer because a lot of people mistakenly believe that once you've been published, everything you write is going to be published. And for those of us who are published, we've spent time. We've spent a lot of time on books that might never see the light of day, or maybe they will down the line. 
So we get that rejection and that disappointment, but we keep coming back at it. And I heard someone describe it once as if you play the piano, you know that you have to practice. Your family is suffering through your practice uh, for hours a day. And that's what makes you a great piano player. But for writers, you don't always see, we don't always talk about the hours we spend writing something that will never get out there. And so I look at that book. I look at my darlings that I have to kill. I look at chapters that will never make the light of day as this is building muscle. This is practicing my piano. That book taught you a whole bunch. It may be in the drawer, but it made you a better writer. So in no way, a waste of time. Byron, thank you so much for joining us on the show. For our listeners, we are putting Big Gay Wedding on our bookshop.org affiliate page. Please go out and get it. It is absolutely wonderful. I know many of you are writing from the perspectives of characters. Many of you have asked me about an omniscient kind of point of view, and this is the book to read, to really make notes, to learn how to do it. Carly and Cece, as always, thank you for your incredible insights, and we will see you all for next week's episode. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted? It happens over and over and it's all over social media. Authors really think it's a them problem, but not always. They really just weren't shown the way. And I don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs. I have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years. I have now built a six module, 10 hour course with all my knowledge. And that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. And there's an app. Over 100 of you have already joined my new course. And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it. Worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD, P-O-D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com course. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on.